Hey, welcome back to the Gold Standard Podcast. And I just wanted to let you know that today is part one of a two-part episode with two-time MLB All-Star Shay Hillenbrand. I hope you're encouraged by what he has to share. You're listening to the Gold Standard Podcast. I'm your host, three-time Olympian and motivational speaker, Leah Amico. On this show, we're going to dig deep to unlock what it actually takes to build a foundation for greatness. If you're an ambitious person with big vision, but you feel like fear is holding you back, get ready for some major breakthroughs. Let's dive in. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Gold Standard Podcast. I'm really excited about today's episode and this guest. I recently heard him share his story and really wanted him to be able to come on and share his story, but he is a two-time MLB All-Star for the Boston Red Sox and the Toronto Blue Jays. He has an Emmy award-winning story, which you're going to hear a little bit about today. And he also owned a zoo. So I love the fact that (laughs) he just has this wide variety of passion. Um, Everyone welcome Shay Hillenbrand to the show. Shay, welcome for being here. Oh, thank you so much. I'm super grateful. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited. First of all, my husband's the biggest Boston Red Sox fan. Oh, my husband's is he? from Boston. He's from <laughs> Boston. I'm from California. What was it like playing with Boston fans? I need to know that first. Well, myself as well. I'm from California as well. I grew up in LA area, Arcadia. And it's just uh, next to Pasadena and West LA area, 30 minutes outside of the city. And I'd sit at the top deck of Dodger Stadium when I was a kid. Uh, eight years old, nine, 10. My mom had season tickets. She'd take my best friend and myself. I'd have my chocolate malt in one hand and my nachos in the other hand. And I'd always say, I'm going to be down there someday. I'm going to play down there someday. I didn't really care too much about the players. Um, I just really loved the sport and what it provided me as an opportunity to escape all the things that would ramble through my head as a kid all the time, that that specific focus was just uh, just phenomenal. So actually, I was drafted by the Red Sox out of junior college at 20 years old. And I proceeded to tell all my friends that I was drafted by the White Sox. And they're like, what are you talking about, man? You got drafted by the Red Sox. And I couldn't tell the difference between white and red. They're both Sox. And they'd say all the time, like, Red Sox Nation, man. It's comprised of six states. It's New England, man. Like, 1918, the last time the Red Sox won the World Series, the Yankees-Red Sox rivalry is crazy. And I'd always say to them, wait, 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 wait. I grew up a Dodger fan, man. I'm a Dodger fan. And a Dodger fan in the 1980s, you show up in the third inning, you leave in the seventh inning to be traffic. That's why you leave so early. And you're listening to Vince Scully on the radio. So as I said at the top deck of the stadium in Dodger Stadium as a kid, I'd always imagine myself being announced by Vince Scully. He put me to sleep uh, when I went to bed many of nights, his soothing voice, his storytelling, all that stuff. So uh, when I arrived in Boston, it was, you know, I want to say culture shock, but it hit and pierced my soul to a level to where that's the only place I ever wanted to play. Um, I had Red Sox. I have the goosebumps right now. Uh, and I'm 47 years old. I had a Red Sox red, like flowing through my veins, like at, at a deep level, uh, all the way to my soul. Um, I get fan mail on a continual basis from 
young females, girls that would say, I've been watching every single game with my dad since I was three years old. And and it's just phenomenal because when you play in Boston as a Red Sox player, um, you know, you're going to get booed when you make an error or you don't come through. The passion is just second to none, but they never booed me for my uh, effort on the field. And there's a lot of players that really can't rise to that occasion and handle the pressure of an environment like that. But I just thrive there. And I have story after story after story of great memories of, of playing there. That's so good to hear that and to hear your passion. And so when you go into that environment, I mean, for me again, like, I didn't grow up being able to go play pro ball, right? Softball was like the small pro league. But when I got to college and played at Arizona, they were just building and they ended up building a brand new stadium my freshman year. And it was just packed. They had just won a national championship a couple of years earlier. So at that point, that was our big leagues, right? And so to be in that environment and we had people that would come out and just watch us practice. And we had these fans that were just known. And so again, for me as a young girl, right, it's different because I don't have that opportunity. But then eventually got to play on Team USA and be in, in that stadium and have everybody cheering for you. I love hearing that. I love you saying that as a little boy, you watch and you said, I am going to be on that field. I, I also grew up here in Southern California and I, my dad was the biggest, I'm only a year older than you. So, you know, we were all watching Kirk Gibson and we, you know, my dad going crazy, right. When they win and, and just that it was, that's what we did in California. Like you were a Dodger fan. So I can so relate to that, but how important is that? Because for me, my first goal, I'm going to get a college scholarship. My second goal, when they first announced it was going to be on the Olympic team, I'm going to be on that team. How important is that saying, I am going to be there? It's uh, at the goosebumps again, because that's everything, right? The visualization, like I share with so many people, is the number one tool that we have in our tool belt. So as I'd sit at the top deck of Dodger Stadium as a kid, like I, I just inherently did those things. I didn't really have to think about it. Um, my mom always said, Shay, you made it because you're different. I never thought I was different. I just thought I was just a normal little kid. But, uh, you know, I, I remember being on the ride home from Little League games and I'd just be furious. And actually, one time I slammed the car door in my brother's girlfriend's face and I had to apologize to her as I have tears in my face because I was so like emotionally and frustrated. And my mom would be like, what's wrong? Why are you so mad? And I would always say, my teammates aren't trying as hard as I am. They don't get it. It's way more than winning a game. I'm going to the big leagues. So as I said at the top deck of the stadium uh, of Dodger Stadium, I'd engage all my senses. I'd hear the crack of the bat. I'd feel the energy from the roar of the crowd. I'd smell the freshly cut grass, and I can still still smell that today. And uh, you know, whenever I get, uh, uh, I was grateful enough as a child to get a, a new fielding glove, uh, a Rawlings a gold glove, whatever, uh, every, every season. And I just put that glove over my face and just smell the leather. And I just put on my new batting gloves and the, the, the smell of the batting gloves was different. And in ninth grade, I was the only kid on the team to, to use a wooden bat and everybody else is still using those trampoline aluminum bats that the balls would just fly. And I was like, no, I'm going to use an, a metal bat. Excuse me. I'm going to use a wooden bat and I'd have pine tar on there. And I couldn't wait till I graduated from Little League and went to Pinto Pony for one reason and one reason only, because that's when you could start using metal spikes on the bottom of your shoes. And I would sit there and I was like, I just walk through the dugout and hear the 
I am closer to becoming a big leaguer. And I'd sit in the dentist chair uh, after school, uh, go to the dentist just to get a normal cleaning. And, and I'd look out the window, as you said, Southern California, it doesn't rain much. And uh, it would just start to rain. I would just start crying. And the, the hygienist would be like, what's wrong? Are you hurt? I'm like, no, I'm not going to have practice today. Like, like not the Allen Iverson thing. Like we talking about practice. I'm like, I wanted to practice. I just loved it so much. And the, the technicality and the mindset and, and the, the, you know, navigating the failure, all those things. And, and I think so many times uh, uh, parents have taken dreams out of our kids. Uh, people of influence have put their own limitations of what they've gone through in their life. Not probably not directly, but indirectly on the children. I think children don't dream anymore. I talk to kids all the time. I have five kids of my own and I'm quite often at the supper table. Like, what do you want to do when you grow up? What's your dream? Oh, I don't know. And I'm like, let's go. Let's, let's figure something out. Let's dream and dream big because you know, those dreams that, that, that you can't kick when you go to bed at night and you wake up in the morning, those dreams and those visions that we have, I believe have been given to us uh, by God to go out there, not for ourselves, but to add value to the world with our gifts and our talents and our ability to go out there and impact somebody else's life. So visualization, owning it, saying, you know what? I don't know what y'all are doing. I'm going to the big leagues. I didn't have any chance after high school to play anywhere. I wanted to play at Arizona State University. Growing up in Southern California, I didn't want to go to USC or UCLA or, or Cal State Fullerton, the powerhouses for baseball or San Diego State or, or any of those. I wanted to go to Arizona State. I had an Arizona watch, Arizona State watch. I'm sorry. No disrespect to you because you went to U of A. But it's just, one of, it's just one of those childhood things, you know, like like I talked to Yankees fans like, oh, my gosh, you played for for the bots. And Reds. No, they paid me. Like, like I wanted to be a Dodger. I didn't want to be a Boston Red Sox player as a kid. Like that's my employer. So I had Arizona state shoes, all that stuff. I was actually the number one soccer player in high school in the state of Arizona. I had chances to play at universities and opportunities across the board to play after high school, but I wanted to play major league baseball. And my only option was to walk on at the local community college, Mesa Community College. And the only reason I made the team is because my work ethic. I was the first guy there, last guy to leave. And if you have somebody that's held their dreams so tightly and they're convicted, they're sold, they own, it's very difficult to compete against something like that. Because when those trials come, when you get knocked down and there's a setback, you get knocked straight on your face, you strike out in front of 40,000 people or whatever that might be, you're going to get back up and keep going. That visualization and owning your dream uh, is extremely important. So you weren't recruited by the other schools? You weren't at that point? I wasn't good enough. Oh, what an amazing story. Everybody needs to enough. hear that. You guys, listen to what he's sharing. He ended up being one of the best in the world. And at that point, out of high school, he could have hung it up, right? Hung up his cleats and said, he said, I'm going to play because I have this burning passion. When you're talking, it makes me think about last year. I went and spoke with a, a college on the Northeast and they're not, you know, they're not ranked in the top 20, anything like that. They had this athlete that came up to me with tears in her eyes and basically said, how did you make the Olympic team? That is a dream. That is a goal. And I just saw a stat the other day, their school is not one of the top teams, but they said she's leading in about six offensive categories right now in the nation. Most people probably don't even know her name, but when I see that, I think of the little, the, the not little girl, young, you know, young woman who came up to me to us. with tears. 
because yes, what you're saying is me. I also love soccer. I was like MVP of the league out here in Southern California, but softball again, open more opportunities for what you say. And so, ah, I relate to your passion. 100%. I love that. So what would you say when you got to the junior college, were you then developed? How did, how did that change? Uh, yeah, it's funny because, uh, uh, the dugouts were kind of behind you. Um, maybe if you're standing at home plate, you'd have to look, uh, if the pitcher's right here, I'd have to look like back here to see the dugout on the third base side. And I would hit foul balls in the dugout. I like, that's almost impossible. I'd pull foul balls in the dugout and the head coach of the team, uh, was a disgruntled first round draft pick that never made it. And he'd call me and our second baseman, the spin brothers, like you're spinning off the ball or whatever. And I'd take that personal. I was like, dude, don't call me spin brothers. Teach me how to hit full because I got places mm -hmm. to go. So like, like we had a drill for tryouts my freshman year of college. We're all infielders. They put it shortstop and you'd throw a ball from shortstop to first base. And they'd have a coach with the old jugs uh, radar gun and they'd radar you to see how, how hard you threw the first base. And I had my turn. I went and threw and I asked the coach, how hard did I throw? And he said, Oh, you threw 84. And my second, my second question, and this is what I want to share with your audience is that the decisions and actions you make and the questions you ask are more important than anything else that you could do. It's the decisions and actions you make. And the next question I asked that coach with the clipboard was, who threw the hardest? And he went down the list of probably 55 players, and he said, oh, Brett Lockwood did. He threw 91. So right there my freshman year, as I was trying out, I made a commitment to myself that I've already made the team during the tryouts because no one's going to outwork me. But my sophomore year, I'm going to come back in the same drill and I'm going to crush this guy. I didn't get a professional throwing coach. I didn't work with a professional hitting coach. I didn't have a, a therapist. I didn't have uh, the video to analyze every single movement. I didn't have a movement coach or a strength coach or a nutritionist just simply because those were not options at that time. But what I did is I had a bucket of baseballs and I went down to my high school alma mater and out here in Arizona during the summer, it gets extremely hot. No days off. I threw 300 balls against the wall, the racquetball court every single day. And I had, uh, as I got going, what I did was I said, okay, I don't want to throw the ball down towards the bottom because it wouldn't come back to me. I want to throw it over here because it'd come back over here. I wouldn't like, I wouldn't like, I'm not thinking mechanics. I'm thinking like, I want this ball to come back to me so I can work on my fielding and I don't have to go chase balls. So I just worked and worked and I just figured it out. That's kind of like the cognitive thinking and being able to focus that kids lack nowadays because uh, they don't really go out there and work because it's difficult with attention spans, cognitive thinking, and instant gratification. So long story short, I didn't take a day off. When it was hot, sick, tired, every single day. We went on vacation. I was finding a place to throw a ball against the wall. That's it. Like I was just obsessed with becoming the best that I could be. So sophomore season, go for tryouts. My turn comes up. I throw the ball to first base. Coach is like, oh my gosh. I said, what? You just threw 94 across the diamond. So what happened was I threw the hardest on the, 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 the my team, junior college team, from shortstop to first base out of any infielder. 
What is the result of that? Now I gain respect for my teammates because it's like, this guy's the best. Like he threw better than all of us. But in that, in, in that aspect, it opens up the coaches and people's eyes that are in the position to help guide you to the next level. So how did I do that? I just went out and threw. I just threw and threw and threw. And I've probably thrown a baseball couple million times. My arm is still fine. There's no problem with it. I just worked and worked and worked and worked. So my sophomore season of junior college, um, I became the number one player at the junior college level in Arizona. I led the league in five of the eight offensive categories, and I had 28 of the 30 scouts, professional scouts, sit at my kitchen table, my parents' kitchen table, and were uh, scouting me. And what I want to share with you, and the only reason I'm sharing a story with you is because this is what's relevant to all your listeners. They all said the same thing to me. They said, Shay, you were the only person that we recruited in Arizona or scouted in Arizona. Arizona is a hot belt, hotbed like California, Texas for baseball. You're the only person in Arizona that we scouted that ran hard from home to first every single time. What did that do? It gave me a chance to be noticed out of the sea of red of so many different players. So with that being said, I was drafted by the White Sox. I mean, the Red Sox. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. Oh my gosh. You're just speaking to my soul right now because literally that is my story. I played with people faster than me, stronger than me, so more talent. But I was like, I will outwork you. Like I will, I'll put it in. I'll find a way I will do more and more and more reps. And again, it was part of my spirit. Like I came to life when I was on the field, like it was this passion. And like, you just talked about like that failure recovery, like, okay, I, I know I'm better than this. Like, yeah, I'm mad. I'm mad at myself. Cause I have higher expectations, but I am going to find a way that pitcher will not beat me a second time. So how did, is that how you did that with like facing opponents? Like, you know, maybe after, I don't know, after, how did you bounce back after a bad, a bad, a bad game, a bad day? What did you do? That's a great question. I was going to write that down. Cause it's the first time I've heard that failure recovery. Uh, I love that. Uh, cause that's extremely important. Um, I, 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 I call it kind of like navigating failure. So, uh, what it is, is that it all starts with when you work and when you train, see, in order for me to become a two-time all-star and one of the best in the world at hitting a baseball, I mastered hitting off the batter's tee. And so many people skim over that level one, step one of the foundational of the swing. But the batter's tee is the number one tool if you talk to any major leaguer that played, uh, maybe not now, because a lot, a lot of the organizations are taking tees out of their training regiments, regiments especially mm-hmm. the, the, the Yankees, but in the minor league system. But that's where you can master the mechanical movements. So what it was is like I just did it over and over and over and over and over again. So in order for me to allow my intuition to kick in in the game and not think about my mechanics or how I'm going to swing the bat and be able to switch, allow me to react to a pitch. I had to be able to place my focus 100% on the pitcher, but I gained self-confidence through my training. So many guys, even in the big leagues, so many guys didn't work half as hard as me. And and what happens is self-confidence demands evidence. Self-confidence demands evidence. You must gain self-confidence by 
putting the work in. There's you can't have false self-confidence. You can't talk. You can't joke. You can't trick maybe other people, but you can't trick yourself and what you think in the moment. So what I did is I learned how to create what I call as a four-step focus formula. So when guys went in the, went in the cage and they worked, uh, they would just try to hit line drives to the back of the cage or off the L screen. I didn't do that. That's too generalized of a focus to be able to ingrain a specific swing for a specific swing uh, uh, inside of a ball that's in that, that location of the pitch in the, in the batter's box in the game. So if there's a ball down the middle, I would have four things I'd focus on. I'd say, where am I going to hit this ball? I'm going to hit the ball off the L screen. That's step number one. Step number two is I'm going to look at the ball. I'm not looking at the pitcher, pretending like there's a pitcher out there. And then I'm just like, people get too fancy at it. And step number two, I'm looking at the ball with a soft focus and I'm telling my mind, I'm hitting this ball off the L screen, off the L screen, off the L screen, off the L screen. The mind's RIS, the reticular activating system, is like the heat seeking signature on a heat seeking missile. And when you tell your mind what to do, it will tell your body what swing to use to be able to hit the ball where you want to hit it. So it's direction, ball, and then step three is, as I'm still looking at the ball with a soft focus, not an intense focus, not trying to hit the ball, with a soft focus, I tell myself to start my swing. See, when you start your swing, you start engaging your loading mechanism. Your loading mechanism is the most important part of your swing. That's when you move your hands back, and that's when you take your stride and step. That's the most important part of your swing. You're not doing that to get ready to hit. You're doing that to get ready to read the pitch. So step three is start. And then step four is feel the movement. Step one, direction. Uh, L screen. Step two, ball. Achieve my load, feel. Direction, ball. Achieve my load, feel. Direction, ball. Achieve my load, feel. I have a specific, minute focus, not a generalized focus, to allow my emotions to come in when I don't achieve hitting the ball where I want to hit it. So what happens if I hit the ball towards the top of the net or to the left or maybe push it or pull off of it? Well, what did it feel like? Well, I felt my body here. I felt my hands here. Maybe I felt like I was rushed or maybe I felt tension. So now you bring awareness to where you are right now. Well, I don't want to feel that. I want to feel that. I want to feel the movement of the line drive. That's what it is. And then once you get that dialed in, direction, ball, achieve my load, feel. Dang it, I messed up. Direction, ball, achieve my load, feel. Dang it, I messed up. Direction, ball, I feel, feel. It's the same thing over and over and over and over and over. It's not just put the ball on the tee and then hit a line drive. So many people put the ball on the tee and hit a line drive. And when you do that, you place your focus on the mechanics of trying to do it. You already know how to do it. But what's blocking your mechanics is your mindset and your focus on the wrong thing. It has to be in the ball. So why do I say that? Because in the major leagues, I have one pitch and at bat to do anything with. And then I have to be able to make an adjustment in between pitches. It's almost insanity to do that. So it's like this is the process that you do to be able to train over and over. Now we do front toss. Now we got coach pitch. Now we got uh, uh, machine pitch, curve balls, whatever that may be, rise balls with you guys or change-ups. Okay, now I got a three-step focus. When do I start, read the pitch, react? It's not direction ball because I'm going to hit the ball 
depending on where the pitch is pitched. So it's when do I start, read the pitch, react. So now I have a three-step focus when I get in the game against Mariano Rivera with the Yankees as I'm in Boston with Manny Ramirez on second base and the Fenway faithful are going crazy with 34,000 in the stands, erupting in the eighth inning with Shea Hillenbrand, a sophomore, second year in the game at the plate, the seven-hole hitter, and I get the count 2-2, two, two, direction, ball, achieve my load, feel. Direction ball achieve a little feel. I've done that over and over and over and over and over. So now when I stop, when I walk to the plate, I have nothing but pure confidence permeating through my veins. And when that happens, it's only because I trained the right way with a specific focus with my mindset. It's not going out there and doing the physical thing, it's training this. But the only thing that separates a double A player and a two-time all-star in the big leagues is mindset. So when I step in the batter's box, I know Mariano Rivera is going to throw me a pitch in. If he misses up at my letters, or if he if he throws it at my letters where he's trying to hit, I'm done. But I'm living and dying on the decision that I make because I know he's throwing it there. But if he just misses by that much, I got him. So I, what I focus on is when do I start? At what point in his windup do I start my swing? Read the pitch. Because when I read the pitch, it transmits the information to my brain. My brain processes that information of what it sees in milliseconds, and it says launch. So I have to have my loading mechanism achieved before I launch, or my mechanics are going to break down. 98% of your mechanical breakdown in the game is timing and swinging up balls. It's focus. It has nothing to do with the mechanics of the game. I swear hitting a baseball has this much to do with the mechanical aspect. It's mindset and movement and sequence and balance throughout that. That's all it is. It's the same thing as punching. It's the same thing as everything else that we see with martial arts or boxing. So now I see that pitch in the location. Oh, snap, he missed. All I did was react. But the kicker is here is that for you to react to a pitch, you have to have every muscle in your body relaxed because a reaction happens when you Fire your muscles. And when you fire your muscles, boom, the ball just explodes and the bat just flies through the zone. But so many people have tension already because their thought, because their focus isn't on when do I start, read the pitch, react. But get this. If I have a soft focus on his arm, at what point in his windup do I start? If that soft focus just has a little bit of a blip in my focus and it switches my focus to his eyes, I'm done. Because now I know Mariano Rivera is the best pitcher ever, and I have zero chance to have success. I relate to all of that. Everything. I, I can't wait for people to listen to this. We're going to get into a little more of your personal story for this next half, but I love everything you just said. And I 100%, like you said, that foundational, I think anybody who's reached an elite level, you watch people and they're out there trying to get these kids dive and whatever. And they don't even have good fundamentals for a regular ground ball. I said, come watch our Olympic team. Our coach is going to roll us ground balls over and over. And you're going to see us on T, 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 everything you just said. And we're so good. Like you just said, mastery, mastery, and not taking anything for granted and knowing when the tiniest thing is off and then fixing that. And then, like you said, okay, now what is what is the mindset with that? I love. And, and also I can think back to those times I told people where physically I was a mess and literally I just, that one, I, that, that tournament, it was with USA team. I literally was like, I just started telling myself, bring it pitcher. I'm going to beat you even on my worst day. I'm still better than you. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and, you know, for us, the best pitcher I ended up winning three gold medals with, I faced her my freshman year in college and got the winning hit to win the national championship for our, you know, bring in the RBI and she gave up one hit only, but like you, what you said, if I was, if I played the name game 
if I looked anywhere else from out, you know, without being just focused on that ball. And like you said, trusting all my confidence, just like you. And I don't know, maybe there's just something about these, like, because it didn't just come so fluid and easily, we became, you know, masters at what we did, but because that work had to be applied almost, I think it almost could take us to another level. I love, love, love what you're sharing. I hope you enjoyed part one with Shay Hillenbrand. This is just a reminder that on Friday, part two will be airing for episode 77 of the Gold Standard Podcast. So make sure to listen in on Friday. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Gold Standard Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share it with a friend. You can post on social media and tag at Leah20USA or use hashtag gold standard podcast. Make sure you also subscribe so you get notified each week as a new episode releases. You can subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We appreciate your reviews as they help encourage others to listen in. Until next time, live out the gold standard and keep turning your goals into reality.